You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey, clones, let me tell you all about Root Insurance. Now, what if good drivers did not have to pay for bad drivers? Root Insurance thinks that the old way of pricing car insurance is not fair, so they developed a mobile app that measures driving behavior by removing bad drivers from the equation. So gone are the days where your car insurance rate is based on your credit score, your age, your gender, your zip code. With Root, it's car insurance made easy, using an app to base rates primarily on how you actually drive. That's how Root saved its good drivers up to 52% in 2019. Better drivers do deserve better rates. That's why the Root app uses driving behavior as the primary factor to determine car insurance rates. And in 2019, Root was the fastest growing direct insurance company in the United States. All you have to do is download the Root Insurance app, then drive normally for a few weeks during the Root test drive, and then see how much money you can save. Don't wait. Give Root a try. Head to your app store and download the Root Insurance app and sign up in less than a minute and start your test drive today. That's R-O-O-T. Again, download the Root app today and visit joinroot.com to learn more and see how much you can save. Root deserves the right to refuse to quote any individual a premium rate for the insurance advertised herein, savings based on national reviews reported by actual customers, Form 1, not available in all states. This product is not available in California. I tell you, because I, I remember, of course, listening that day, and I think, for whatever reason, he, he didn't turn up. You turned it into a couple hours of amazing radio and, and just the callers calling in, <laughs> jumping down Paul's throat in the band. It still stands out to me as one of the funnier days on the jungle and one of the better things. I mean, you turned uh, you know, the proverbial uh, chi- chicken <laughs> into chicken salad. It was fantastic. Yo, 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 what's cracking? Welcome to the Jim Rome Podcast. The first Jim Rome Podcast of the new year, Ep 110 to be exact. And we've got a great one for you today. It's great because it's different. I'm changing up on you. Why? Well, the same reason anybody does anything, because they can. Today, I'm going with a personal passion. Now, I'm a huge music guy. If you know that, you probably know my favorite band ever is probably The Replacements. And there's nobody anywhere who knows more about this legendary band than journo slash producer Bob Mayer. He literally wrote the book on The Replacements. It is the definitive work on the band. It's a book called Trouble Boys. It's a fascinating read. His access and insight into Paul Westerberg and the crew is unparalleled. Now, if you know the band and you love the band, you'll be hanging on his every word. And even if you do not know the band, you'll still be all about it because this is without question one of my favorite pods I've ever done. Not only does he know the band, he is a longtime Jungle listener, and he knows this show cold. I could not love this ep any more than I do, so here it is. We kick off 2020 with ep 110 of the Jim Rome Podcast with Bob Mayer right now.
Bob, I'm so glad you and I could finally come together. When your book dropped, and we'll get into the book in a moment, in 2017, I knew that we had to do this. I had no idea it would take this long to do this, but I'm glad that we could finally come together. What's going on, Bob? How are you? I, I appreciate it, Jimmy. It's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure, so thanks for having me on. All right, so now you wrote the definitive story of The Replacements, Trouble Boys, the true story of The Replacements. Now, they're probably, Bob, my favorite band ever, had frontman Paul Westerberg not disrespected the jungle <laughs> as badly as he did in the mid-2000s. There'd be no doubt. But then again, I guess I got to be real, Bob. I got to be honest because I loved all that all, that rock star crap that Paul used to pull until he pulled it on me. So I have to own that. But as you know, time heals most wounds. For those who do not know, this is a band, an amazing band with a remarkable story. If you don't know the band or the music, how would you describe the replacements and their place in rock history? Well, I would say they're a band that probably has influenced uh, and uh, probably all your favorite bands influence the whole sort of era of music and their impact probably far outstrips what their actual commercial sales were. They were, they were kind of the proverbial sort of uh, the band that could have made it but didn't. And, uh, and yet at the same time, you know, their, their, their impact and their legacy has is, is really kind of grown almost in their absence. They, they, they existed for about 12 years in the 80s, started in 79, broke up in 91, so really were an 80s band. Uh, put out eight records in that time. Half were indie label records, half were on Warner Brothers, and mostly were critics darlings. Were a big college band. Were part of the American indie scene, uh, but really they were the band that was tipped to be the next big American rock and roll band, the next Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, the next you know who, who, whoever. And they sort of fell short, and yet in that sort of falling short, they became bigger than they than they were in these last thirty years since they split up. They've kind of become this you know as I put it in the book, they became legends without ever really becoming stars. There's so many really interesting things to me in what you just said, but the fact is they were destined. They were earmarked to be the next big thing, the next great American band. You mentioned, like, for instance, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Like, how big are we talking, and then why didn't it happen? Well, and that's sort of what ultimately what the book is about. You know, for years I had replacements. As I say, they were they were beloved by the press. They were critical darlings. So there's a lot of stuff written about them in, in their in their life and and since the breakup of the band. But none of it really sort of explained that question of why to me. It's like why didn't they sort of hit the heights that everyone had sort of hoped and predicted for them? And when you get down to it and, and researching it in the years I spent in the book, is that it all goes back kind of to their to their early form forming and their their rooting. It's basically these were guys that got together. They're from Minneapolis, Minnesota. They were all kind of lower middle class guys who really had no hopes or aspirations or dreams of anything. I mean, as Paul Westerberg put it, he said they, there wasn't a high school diploma or a driver's license in the band. I mean, they were basically all dropouts with kind of no futures, and they found each other. And in finding each other, they found this kind of other thing, which was which was the power of the band. And it's like sort of the sum of the parts. Uh, the whole is bigger than the sum of the parts. And they, you know, they they basically kind of had a magic together almost from the start. Uh, that that sort of drew people and and created this sort of excitement. You know, having seen them and caught them in, in those in those early years, there was just something about replacements fandom, about being a fan of this band that made you feel like you were part of something. And I think that's what sort of people kind of saw as being having the potential to become this this massive thing. And then when you really find out, strip away and find out the stories, that these, these were pretty doomed guys. They came from really difficult backgrounds, you know, alcoholism, abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, mental illness. And it's sort of those are the elements that sort of made them perfect for each other and perfect for this kind of cult following, but also kind of kept them from reaching that, the, the real heights of commercial success. All right. So I want to talk about how they found each other. But first, how did you find them? What was your first exposure to the band? 
Well, like probably like a lot of people, the the first and and biggest opportunity they had for the replacements to to kind of to see the replacements was on Saturday Night Live in 1986. The band had just released their first major label album and got a last minute spot, literally as replacements on an episode of Saturday Night Live in January of '86. And they came on, and you know, Jim, as you remember, in that time, TV music on TV and rock and roll it was a, it was the big '80s. It was the the big hair synthesizers and these guys came on looking like they had just come off like a three-day bender disheveled really raw incredibly loud so much that it almost sort of like burst the sound on the screen and you know i was at home i was like a kid 12 years old watching a, a probably pretty dire episode of saturday night live it was sort of the anthony michael hall robert downey jr season of it but i remember seeing this band who i had no knowledge of i didn't know them or their music but just re- feeling like, what is this? I've never seen anything like this, particularly in that era uh, of a band that was just so raw and visceral that it sort of grabbed you by the throat. And and then eventually, out of that experience and seeing them, I, I became a fan of the music uh, and sort of, you know, like a lot of people, as I say, there's no casual replacements fans. The people that are into them, it's, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a real passion. And so uh, eventually over the years, as I became a, a music journalist, kind of got to know some of the people who were involved in their story, uh, some of the people they work with at record companies, and you just hear these stories. There were so many anecdotes and so much myth and romance with, with the replacements. It, it just kind of lured you in. And then ultimately I thought, well, I want to sort of get behind the myth and really try and find out what the real story is. And so it was kind of the start of what I, unbeknownst to me would be like a decade-long journey to sort of research and, and write this book. You know, I'm not saying that I'm a journal like you, Bob, but the interest, again, the answer is so interesting that I've got like 10 things I want to ask you just based sure. on that, but you understand this. Like in terms of that appearance, I watched the video of, again, of that performance yesterday, man. It is so raw. It is so good. It is so different. I understand that even as an 11-year-old where that might have grabbed you. Correct me if I'm wrong. Were they not banned from <laughs> SNL after that appearance? Or was that a yeah, different one? B- basically, if you watch it, I mean, it, it seems so tame by today's standards, but uh, as, as they're going into the solo on the first song, Paul sort of uh, lets off a little bit of a, a curse word as he's sort of encouraging the guitar player, Bob Stinson, to, to take the solo. And, of course, in between, you know, back then they did, two, or even now they do two performances on Saturday Night Live. So between that that set and their second performance, Lauren Michaels kind of read them the riot act. And also, as he was doing that, he realized that they had kind of rearranged the dressing rooms uh, with some effect and destructive effect. And so he really lost it. And then afterwards, yeah, they were banned for, for years from Saturday Night Live, from NBC, and in fact, didn't make a network TV appearance for another three years. Ultimately, uh, they, they returned to the air on ABC. But yeah, it was like, uh, it is one of the, the more infamous moments on Saturday Night Live. But when you watch it now, you don't really get any of why anybody would be upset, but you just get kind of more of this, the impact of them as, a, as this incredible like rock and roll machine. And it adds to the story, and this is what you get if you bring these guys in. I wonder, Bob, like, what did they think? I mean, that I understand that they were getting major label run at that point, but what an opportunity that was, even as a last-second fill-in. Like, what did Paul think? Was that just another gig to him? Did they understand what that represented? Uh, how do you think they approached that night? Well, I think that night, as, as with most of their career and what their kind of reputation is built on, a lot of it is it came from Paul. His, his sense of things and, and a lot of this goes to his psychology, his particular psychology, is he wanted to be remembered. He wanted the band to be remembered. Coming
coming from where they came from. They never thought necessarily they could be the best band or the most famous or the most successful, but they did think they could leave some kind of mark. And you know, he said even in the earliest days of the band, when they would when they would you know get the, their first shows or whatever, he, his thing was he didn't want people to come away from their performance saying, you know, the next day saying, hey, did you hear the replacements? But rather, did you see the replacements? To like the sense of outrage, the sense of excitement, the sense of danger really was what he was interested in. And you know, given that stage on NBC and on Saturday Night Live, he was going to take it. And, you know, that's a kind of pattern that repeats itself in their career over and over of, of them doing things that, in a way, were probably seemed like they were, they were hurting themselves and hurting their career, and they probably were in the short term. But in the long term, here it is, we're talking about it 30 years later. Right. Now, when you talk about kind of the myth and the romance, I mean, you like, you're a journalist, you like a great story as much as anybody. Is that the thing that captivates you about the band or is it the music? I think it's both. I mean, for me, it really was just trying to untangle or, or understand the riddle of, of this group that had this amazing songwriter in, in Westerberg, had a, had a tremendous rock and roll band, and that's a marriage that's very rare. Very, you know, A lot of times you'll get a band that has a great singer-songwriter, uh, you know, insightful singer-songwriter in it, but the band isn't that great. But this was a, a band that could that could rock and roll, be as loud as raucous as anything, but then sort of deliver these ballads that also sort of break your heart. Um, and so in that combination, you know, that was a real power. But for me, it's just like the, the, the thing that that repeats itself in the story is what what that came up for me was what is the truth here like what really happened because these guys were you know they're midwestern guys they're reluctant guys they never really talked about anything never really revealed themselves truly it was always a joke or a or a drunken prank or whatever that was the way they expressed themselves but getting into the story i found as i got deeper into it it's like there was some real heavy stuff in in their backgrounds and in their lives and that was the kind of thing that pulled them together and ultimately kind of pulled them apart but it was the thing that really kept drawing people and continues to to draw people to them today that 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 kind of intangible sort of you know energy and quality and story that i i try and unpack in in the book all right so the title of the book it's right there the true story of the replacements were you looking to set the record straight like what was true and what was not true yeah, I mean, I think with a band given to as much myth and romance as, as they have been, there there was a lot of things I had to untangle or debunk or, or just understand for myself. The funny thing, of course, is with the replacements, the, the stories that you would hear that are the most outrageous, the most ridiculous, the most unbelievable, you'd think those are the ones that you're going to be able to dismiss and debunk. And it turns out, of course, the most outrageous things were, were the things that turned out to be true. You know, so it's uh, they, they definitely lived up to the hype and to the promise of, of, of all the kind of... Uh, you know, crazy rock and roll excess or what have you. But, you know, even within that, there was a lot more heart to the story. So what was something that was really outrageous that shouldn't have been true that was true? Well, you know, just sort of the level of their drinking at, at, at the peak. I mean, this is a, a band that, you know, they started very young. I mean, the youngest member, Tommy Stinson, he was 12, 13 years old when they first got on stage, and, and the rest of the guys were, you know, barely out of their teens, 17, 18, 19. And early on, they were... They were, you know, they were nervous. They were, they were, they were trying to get on stage, and booze sort of steeled their nerves. And then eventually, after a few years, it became part of the the performance and presentation. Some of it was, you know, like like I say, just to give them the the gumption to get on stage and play. 
Uh, and then some of it became part of this circus that they were kind of putting on. And, you know, through those years, 83, 84, the Let It Be era, the Tim era, which was kind of their college rock peak, people were coming out to see this high wire act. You know, it, it was always this thing of what are the replacements going to do next? I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's so many stories just about um, a, a little wrinkle in the show, whether it was Paul grabbing a helium b- balloon and sucking from it and then singing a cover of Born in the USA in this high-pitched voice. Wow. Or, you know, all these things that are just some little wrinkle that probably, you know, most people uh, it wouldn't even think of. It's the things that people talk about and, and build myth around and build all this kind of story. So there was a thousand things like that where you realize as, as real as this band was, as authentic as they were, there was a little aspect of showbiz to their presentation that, in that they wanted to leave all the, all the customers sort of with, with, a, with a memory that they wouldn't forget. Now, I've already talked about that and write about that, Bob. He understood that. Paul understood this notion of showmanship. I, I never heard the story. I knew that he go to the helium but i didn't know that he'd go to born in the usa was he is that the cynic in him was he looking to mock bruce with that like where was he going with that well you know one of their things was was playing covers particularly in a period they would just do sets of where they would get drunk and do sets of cover songs you know everything from you know black sabbath to the partridge family i mean and some of that was genuine love i mean these are kids that grew up in the 70s weaned on that kind of era of pop and, and classic rock radio and a lot of it was messing with the crowd you know early on they were very much caught up in the punk and ha- hardcore scene and they would be playing to crowds of really sort of you know just adrenalized hardcore uh, punk kids who just wanted to hear loud, fast stuff. And of course, their contrarian nature was such that that was when they would break out the slowest country covers, you know, and play Hank Williams for a crowd of, of ha- hardcore Orange County punks, you know, just to, just to piss them off. So it really was a, a sense of Westerberg and the band's you know, rebellious, rebelliousness, their contrarianism coming to the fore. And that was what made their, their kind of performances so unique and their reputation, you know, so special. I like, think. and Bob, like Paul, like he wrote, like, beautiful ballads and like really melodious stuff but they were a hardcore punk band to start off so like like what was he at heart was he like a partridge family guy was he all the above was he like a like a bubble bubblegum kind of guy like what was he i I think he was all of the above you know he was raised his older brother was a was a fan of blues and bluegrass and that's what he really started playing you know and then for years before ever before he ever got into the replacements he was just a a lead guitar player playing and you know playing kegger parties and, and and basement parties all through minneapolis where he was kind of like a hotshot lead guitar player and for him the moment where it changed is the first time he heard the sex pistols I mean, he said, I heard the Sex Pistols, and I wasn't, I wasn't even out the door, and I was going to cut my hair and, and throw away all my old records. And so that was kind of the turning point was for him was kind of hearing punk rock and, and, the, and the power that could be harnessed there. And he had decided, that was when he decided, I'm not just going to be a guitar player. I want to be a singer. I want to lead a band. And so it was the kind of democratic nature of, of, of punk rock that anybody could do it, that you didn't have to be a, a great singer or a, or a super good-looking guy to, to, to be able to kind of have a band and front a band. And so for him, I think, you know, he's rooted in, 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 in the blues. He's, a, he's definitely a, a, a literate writer and loves singer-songwriter stuff, but it was punk rock and, and, and that, that music that really allowed him uh, or gave him the sanction to say, hey, I'm going to be a, a front man. I'm going to lead a band. And, uh, and so I think all of that is in him. And if, and if you listen to the, to, the, to the band's records, I mean, particularly as they moved on to the middle part of their career, the first couple records are real kind of punk rock records. But as they move on to their career, you hear them doing and trying everything. You know, they're doing bubblegum songs. They're doing electronic stuff. They're doing rock, country, blues. You know, it's sort of like 
for them, the, their real identity, they didn't find it until they decided, we don't have an identity. We can play anything and try anything, and we'll dare to try anything. Yeah, they were very rangy. They were very versatile. They were not afraid. And I know you've also made the point, Bob, that no record, none of those records sound alike. There, there's no two records. Right. They didn't do the same record. You know, there were so many bands that came after them that were so influenced by them. You started this off by saying that. I'm curious about some of the really big-time names at that time, like David Bowie or Kurt Cobain, Tom Petty, you mentioned. Did, did they know about the band? What did they think of the band? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. The, the, they opened a tour for Petty in 89 where it was really this thing of they thought it was going to be a great opportunity for the replacements to go out and open for Petty at its peak, you know, kind of play to a different audience. And, of course, the opposite happened because the, the, the Petty audience was a little bit apathetic, didn't know them. And so the replacements, instead of trying to win them over, really tried to assault them and attack them. You know, they would they – would, <laughs> But then every once in a while, they would play so great that they would sort of confound people. You know, uh, it, again, it's that sort of contrarian impulse that Paul has. But certainly, they, they rub shoulders. You know, they opened for Keith Richards. They, they hung out with David Bowie. They opened a tour for Tom Petty. They were very aware, fellow musicians, because I think of the great respect for Westberg as a songwriter and the replacements of a band. I mean, they were, they were the, the thing in the 80s, even though their record sales never kind of reached that superstar level. In terms of the way other musicians and other bands regarded them, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was huge. And then, you know, going on as you see the band's influence, I think, really starts coming up in, first in the early 90s and mid-90s. And the thing about the replacements, because they weren't any one kind of band, uh, they influenced a lot of different kinds of bands. So you look at like the early replacements records, like Sorry Ma, I Forgot to Take Out the Trash and Stink, that kind of snotty, smart, bubblegum kind of pump, uh, pop, pop punk, you know, that had a huge influence on Green Day and, and Billy Joe from Green Day, who's a, you know, an absolute Westerberg you know, student and follower and really kind of took a lot of cues from him. And then you look at like the ballad kind of adult pop song, side of Westerberg. I mean, that was a blueprint that like the Goo Goo Dolls took and, you know, sold millions and millions of records with. Uh, and, and, and even bands like Wilco and Jeff Tweedy, I mean, he talked about learning how to write songs by, by listening to Westerberg. So it's, it's, it's not so much that they had this kind of one pervasive influence, but the influence of all their different sounds and styles kind of crops up in, in these different kinds of bands over the years. And I think now you're seeing a whole new generation of bands uh, that are young bands, you know, in their 20s and uh, uh, late teens and early 20s that are kind of taking that replacement influence as well. So when you see like Green Day, who's an amazing band that's had incredible success, far outreaching the replacements, even the Goo Goo Dolls, I like them a lot, especially their earlier stuff. I've seen them give credit to Westerberg, especially like with We Are the Normal on stage. When sure. Westerberg, I'm, I'm sure he has a lot of pride, Bob, that, uh, that he's influenced so many bands, but does he struggle with a lot of these bands that were influenced by him that did so much better than him? Oh yeah, I mean, I think for I think now it's it's probably come around. Particularly, you know, the replacements had a reunion in 2013 to 2015 where they kind of were, you know, as I say, they've gotten so big they were playing arenas and 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 baseball stadiums and things like that. So I think he's now more comfortable with it. But I think there was a long time, and he talks about it in the book, where, you know, he felt like, uh, you know, he he hadn't wasn't able to sort of enjoy the success that others that he'd influenced had. And and, and there's a sort of funny anecdote in the book where he talks about. In the mid '90s, really, where where the replacements influence was was really being profoundly felt, as you say, in Green Day and, and the Goo Goo Dolls and bands like that. And he's at his shrink's office trying to explain to the shrink, like, you know, 
this band sounds like me and that band sounds like me and this other band sounds like me and the shrink's sort of looking at him like he's crazy thinking he's like some deranged person and it wasn't until a guy looked up on the internet and realized oh you're sort of telling the truth here that you, wow. you you, you influence something that sort of you never really got to, to, to enjoy yourself. And, uh, and you know, it's that whole thing of the pioneers get the arrows kind of thing. But I also think there was Westberg himself, you know, some people are built for that kind of success. And I think Westberg and the replacements were built for a different kind of success, which is more about um, their influence and their legacy and, and being discovered not in the moment necessarily, but over time. And, you know, that's kind of the ultimate thing. And I always say, you know, the replacements in, in the short term, in the 80s, you know, they failed commercially. But in the long term, they're, now they're as more popular than they ever were and have kind of reached the heights that everybody have, had sort of hoped for way back then. And maybe in part because they never did become that thing that they were supposed to be. That's got to be part of the intrigue and part of the romance. I- Absolutely. You know, the, the first time when I went to, to start doing this book with Paul, one of the things I, I asked him, I said, hey, what if you had had back in the 80s, what if you had had a hit, even if it was a fluke hit, a one one hit wonder type thing, and you'd sold a bunch of records and, you know, had that kind of that, that thing. And he said to me, well, you wouldn't be here right now. And it's and it's and it's probably true because, you know, the, some of the the, 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 the the lure of the band for a long time was the fact that they just came up short, you know, and and it was they were always kind of a what if band, uh, and I think that you know there's a, there's a there's a like I said there's a romance to that there's an appeal to that 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 kind of kept them pure, and I think in a way you know they never really uh, did anything sort of even as a lot of bands did in the '80s anything embarrassing anything weird anything you look back that sort of made them look silly they kind of always stuck to their guns and and in, the, in that at that time it probably hurt them but in the long run it's the thing that's kept them pure kept people sort of interested and and kept them timeless now Bob the book is really amazing and it's fascinating and you clearly were qualified to write this book but it doesn't mean they want to tell you the story now I can only go by the couple of interactions I've had with Paul which we can talk about in a moment they've been kind of curious Tommy did come on the ill-fated show that day that right. Paul stiffed me on and uh, stiffed me on and Tommy Tommy was pretty engaging and so I was kind of pushing him like some kind of would-be rock journo and then he said to me and I quote dude can we just talk about the Lakers how did you get these guys to commit what was the process and how did you approach them to sit down to give you the access and to commit and give your blessing to the project well, that was really the thing, you know, and, and I put a lot of the work in it on the front end because I knew, you know, the only way to tell the story effectively was to have the guys involved and telling it firsthand. And so, yeah, I spent a year or more really kind of chasing them down, you know, pitching them the idea, talking to them. And I, I was fortunate in that I had their old manager and the guy who had signed them, Peter Jesperson. He hooked me up with Tommy. So we have a dinner out in L.A. with Tommy, and, and I kind of, you know, give him my spiel. And he says famously, well, I'll do it if Paul does it, which is a very good way of of getting out of doing anything if you're relying on, on Paul to do it. So, <laughs> as you well great. know, so, um, so I'm like, okay. So I took that, and a few months later, at, at that time, I was I did a story for Spin Magazine. It was uh, uh, on the replacements. There was, their reissues were coming out. This is about 2008. And so I went out to, to see Westberg in Minneapolis, and, and we went to his house, and we sat, and, you know, we did the interview, and it took a couple hours. And then he, I turned off the recorder, and he said, okay, let's talk about the book. So we had a real serious conversation about, you know, what it would take to do this and what would be involved and what it would entail. And at the end of it, he said, well, listen, if you're going to do this and do it right, the fact is when the book comes out, it might be 
not make me look very good. It might not make us look very good. But the only reason to do this book is if you're going to tell the truth. So you should go ahead and do it. So I had his blessing. So then Tommy was in. And then, you know, I kind of evolved from there, getting some of the other key players involved. So it was one of those things where, I don't know, he took a chance on me and he took a chance on telling his story. And I think enough time had passed, really, uh, that they were ready to kind of look at their at the experience of the replacements. Because, you know, the thing that happened is the replacements break up in 91 and both Paul and Tommy, you know, they're still trying to make a career. They don't think necessarily that the replacements is the end-all be-all. So, you know, Tommy's starting another band, Paul's got his solo career, and they're just charging ahead. There wasn't any time to stop and reflect and look and see what the band was and what went right and what went wrong and just kind of look at their legacy. But after, you know, this, I started it maybe 18 years after the band had broken up. And, and, of course, Bob Stinson, who was one of the founders of the band, and Tommy's brother had passed. And I think enough time had, had been gone from his passing away that, you know, these guys are looking at it and, like, this is kind of their life's work. It's, it's, it's the thing that it, their rep, reputation and legacy is built on. So it's like, okay, well, if maybe now is the time to kind of do this. So it was a, a bit of persistence on my part and, and a bit of lucky timing. And, and I think just the need of, of, of anyone, you know, at that that point in your life, you know, they're reaching 50, to look back and see what this insane decade-long experience that was the replacements really meant. Mm. Good for you, good for them, and it means so much to so many people. Clones, what do we want when we're craving protein or need more energy? Not bars, not sugary snacks, not even energy drinks. No, we want beef, pure and simple. Where's the beef? It's in a package of Old Trapper Beef Jerky. Old Trapper is not your father's jerky. Shriveled, dry, and tasteless. Old Trapper Beef Jerky is made from lean strips of steak and quality spices that are smoked over a real wood fire. So it's tender and tasty, not tough. And why is it so good? Because Old Trapper is a 50-year-old family business known for its relentless commitment to quality. They take smoked beef extremely seriously, and you can taste it in every single bite. Old Trapper is packed with protein, and it comes in four amazing flavors to satisfy all your cravings. Quality smoked meat at its finest that goes with you wherever you go, to the game, to the gym, to the beach, anywhere at all. So look for Old Trapper in the Clearview bag. You can see the quality you're buying. Look for it in major retail stores near you. Clones, if you don't see it, you better ask for it by name because no other jerky compares. Old Trapper, what's your beef? My first exposure, and and you know, like you said, the community of replacement fans were rabid, were obsessed. We all want to share our story. When I was in college, and I'm older than you, but when I was at UC Santa Barbara, I was a big college radio guy, huge REM guy. I loved the Violent Femmes. I loved the Jam. I loved the Clash. I loved the Alarm. I remember listening to a lot of Graham Parker back in the day, and I had a good friend, Bob named Vic Matthews from Los Angeles, Malibu guy, private school guy, and he, he was a really laid-back guy, but he had a great, great ear. He was not in the business. He said, dude, you have to listen to the replacements, and he turned me on to Tim. Tim was just out, and I was like, holy shit, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard in my life. It ultimately led to my first interaction with Paul. I dated a record rep, and she was real good about trying to find things that I liked, and she got me backstage to see the band at the Variety Arts Center. Remember in Los Angeles, downtown LA? And being a good replacements fan, I looked forward to it for months. I had way too much to drink. I couldn't handle my booze. I was a knucklehead and got blasted. And then I met Paul backstage and I sauntered up to him because I'd look forward to the show for like five months. And I'm like, dude, dude, tell me it's not just another show. Tell me, tell me. And he looked at me like I was the biggest a-hole in the world. And he goes, dude, trust me, it's just another show. I'm like, anyway, bye, Paul. And I'm like, what an asshole. Like, I mean, I deserve that. I deserve that. The what? Go ahead. Yeah. The, 
The funny thing about that is those, those Variety, they t- did two shows on that tour at the Variety Arts Center, and those are two notorious shows. The first night, I don't know if you went the first night or the second night, the first night was just an absolute drunken disaster. The drummer, Chris Mars, he passed out you know, a, qu- a third of the way into the set, and the drummer from the opening band got up and played, and at one point, you know, I think half the audience was on stage. And then, of course, all the record company people were there because they were, they were signed to Warner Brothers, and it was a Burbank-based company. So that night, like, the whole label just, like, leaves in, in a fury and then of course the next night when nobody else shows up they play like one of the best shows of the tour you know so it's like that that uh, that, that that total dichotomy that is the replacements that was one of the, you you experienced that at least uh, in, in small part at the that, variety that is incredible i'm so glad that you remember that and i didn't know that that's how the first night went i went the second night because none of that happened but then we were backstage <laughs> and and i remember like it was so weird like i remember my gal my gal like no offense. I mean, she was crazy about me, but she was very comfortable with everything. And I remember her sitting on the piano bench with Paul backstage, and he was he was not unhappy to do that, but <laughs> real unhappy to hear me be all drunk to him. But then the other famous thing that you know about, like, so really quickly, Rhino, and I want to talk to you about the box set before you go. Rhino sure. released a Greatest Hits album in 06, and they had two new tracks, and they literally called me up and said, we want to debut the tracks on your show and let you do the world premiere. Would you like Tommy and would you like Paul? I'm like, you have no idea. I'd rather have that than Michael Jordan. I want this so badly. And I promoted it all week long. Only to get to the day, as you know, and Paul does not show up. And I took it very personally. It was a bad look. I was wounded. It was bad for my pride. I was butthurt. Whatever you want to call it. Tommy showed up, but Paul didn't. And I really had trouble reconciling that. And, Bob, I did not make – I didn't hide it either on or off the air. And they (laughs) finally came back to me and said, Paul feels badly. He wants you to come to the show. I'm like, fuck that. I'm not going. I'm not going. (laughs) And now years later, I probably – and by the way, Bob – you're, you're, I think you're a much more rational person than me. I was really upset. Like, I wouldn't listen to the music for a little while. I, that was my right. guy. That was my guy who did that to me. Do you think that was irrational and unreasonable of me? What do you make of that well, whole thing? Well, I, I tell you, because I, I remember, of course, listening that, that day, and I think the, the whatever happened, whatever reason he, he didn't turn up, you turned it into a couple hours of amazing radio and, and just the callers calling in, <laughs> jumping down Paul's throat in the band. I mean, it, it's, it still stands out to me as one of the, one of the funnier uh, days on the jungle and one of the better things. I mean, you turned uh, you know, the proverbial uh, chi- chicken shit into chicken salad. It was fantastic. Fantastic. So I think, you know, being the professional broadcaster you are, you, you salvage the situation. So uh, so it was all right in the end. I mean, Bob, do you think, I mean, even for a second, that he even had any idea who I was or where he was going and what he was you doing? Know- I, I that, that Paul, I, you know, the thing about Paul is, yes, I won't he take offense. You know what I mean? Not one of those guys who follows pop culture totally, but he is a sports guy. You know, big Minnesota sports fan, hockey guy, baseball guy. I mean, growing up, his his hero was Tony Oliva from the Twins. So, you know, I don't, I don't think, uh, as I always say, you know, you can't take anything personal with Paul uh, because you know you'd be offended all the time. <laughs> but, but, uh, but I think you know, at the end of the day, uh, uh, you know, he, I, he did make it on, I suppose. <laughs> and 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 I always. I was joking with my buddy Jason Elsey over at Rhino Records. He, he still tells me he has uh, PTSD from, from the whole experience of trying to do the, the PR for that. God, dude, I so love I love that you know that story as well as you do because I, I don't know if it was Jason or who it was, but one of the guys called up afterwards and said, man, that was great. I'm like, for you? For you, that was great. I promoted for a whole week. We played the song. Tommy came on. That, for you, that was great. But let me ask you, do you, do you know a guy named Scott Litt? 
Oh, yeah, of course. And I interviewed Scott for the book because he ended up producing what turned out to be the last Replacements record all shook down back in uh, 1990. That's it. So, So, Scott, I don't know if you know this, like the Jungle record. When I released a record in the mid-'90s, it was produced, believe it or not, by Scott Litt and Andy Gershon because they were at Outpost, which was part of Geffen, and they could do stuff like that. Scott Litt is one of my favorite guys. I have not talked to him in years. So what were your conversations with him like? Well, it was really fascinating because he, you know, was the guy who had made REM stars, and REM had been kind of the replacements, friends and tour mates, and eventually rivals. You know, there was a kind of whole rivalry through the '80s. Everybody sort of saw them as the Beatles and the Stones of of American indie rock, and of course, REM, you know, exploded, and 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 the replacements didn't. And originally, the replacements were supposed to hire Scott for uh, their "Please to Meet Me" album, and instead. You know, I think they 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 tied him up and duct taped him when they were interviewing him for for the production gig during the meeting. So he didn't quite get the job. But later on, after he'd had the success with REM, Paul, as he was making what started out to be a solo record, but ended up being kind of like the last replacements record, all shook down work with him. And Scott had great stories. You know, they were recording out in Ocean Way in Los Angeles with the band, and Bob Dylan came in and and was watching them and hanging out with the replacements. Like you know, it's just a kind of crazy thing. And at one point, the replacements were doing a version of. Dylan's Like a Rolling Stone, but they ended up sort of switching some of the lyrics. It's called Like a Rolling Pin, and Dylan was watching them record this uh, and watching Paul sing this very, very drunken version. It sounded like his voice was just like so shoddy. He sounded like Lemmy from Motorhead, and Paul's doing this as a scene in the book where Paul's, you know, kind of leading the band through their version of Like a Rolling Stone with his back to the studio glass, and the band sees that Dylan is in there, and, and they're trying to, like, kind of give him the, you know, the, the cutoff sign, like, hey, Dave, Hey, cut it out, and Paul just doesn't doesn't catch on, and he turns around after the song is over, and he sees that Bob Dylan is standing there, and he just about fainted, and he was just like, <laughs> he sort of fell to his knees, apologizing, "I'm sorry, man." And Dylan was like, "No, no, no, it's uh, it's all right, you know, you sounded like Hendrix doing it or something." So, wow. you know, even Scott was Scott was privy for that, and you know, like Dylan would be hanging out in the studio with them and going to grab a beer from their fridge, and and Tommy would Tommy was like, "Hey, man, that's two bucks." <laughs> Dylan starts. Dylan starts fishing through his pocket for, for money, and Tommy's like, I'm just kidding you, man. So, you know, they had they were always, you know, even in the face of Bob Dylan, who normally people sort of tremble, they, they even they were, like, ready to just, you know, keep being the replacements in his company. All right, so uh, great, great anecdote. So Minneapolis Legends, what about Prince? Did they ever have a run-in with Prince, ever connect well, with Prince? Well, you, you know, they were in that, that whole world. You know, Prince uh, did uh, was playing First Avenue, and they shot Purple Rain at First Avenue, which is the big club in downtown Minneapolis. And Prince was a real savvy guy, you know, as far as, as as far as music and not just, you know, R&B or pop music, but he knew about rock and indie rock and the whole scene that was really exploding in Minneapolis at the time. It's like the same time in the mid-80s, you have Prince blowing up, you've got the replacements, you've got Who's Could Do, you've got all these bands coming. So Minneapolis in the 80s was an incredibly fertile scene, you know, across the board in terms of music. And, you know, there, there was rumors that, you know, Prince would lurk in the shadows at First Avenue when the replacements are playing, but the the, uh, the 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 one story where Paul finally met Prince was actually not in in, in Minneapolis but in St. Paul neighboring St. Paul and he was at some club and some show and Prince happened to be there too and Paul is in the bathroom standing at the urinal and he turns around to his left and looks and sees Prince you know obviously all dolled up in some kind of amazing outfit and the hair and the whole thing going and Paul sort of you know maybe a little tipsy kind of is taken aback looks over to and sees Prince and he's like oh hey man what's up and Prince's answer of course is incredibly Prince and he 
just says life and then sort of flushes the toilet and leaves, you know. So Great. that was the extent of their uh, their interaction. And, of course, the replacements did end up recording at Prince's studio, uh, Paisley Park, towards the end of their career. Uh, Prince had opened that up. And and, uh, and as I mentioned in the book, the first day they were at the studio, they had an amazing, you know, API console, studio console that had Prince had just refurbished. And literally within minutes, Paul sort of had gotten in there and spilled it tumbler of Jack Daniels into all the faders, so they're having to clean that up. So they had some good experiences with Prince and some and some sort of not-so-good ones, but, uh, you know, I think Paul and the band were certainly fans of Prince, and, 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 you know, it sounds like Prince was definitely aware of them as well. And then you mentioned Husker Du. God, that was a great band, too. Great band. You know, I wonder, Bob, it's kind of like apples to oranges in preference, but you mentioned R.E.M., you mentioned The Replacements, and they were rivals. Different bands, different people. I absolutely love both these bands. I can remember seeing R.E.M. on State Street at the, I want to say, the old Grenada Theater, Arlington Theater, uh-huh. remember? And then I remember seeing R.E.M. one year at the Santa, County, uh, Santa Barbara County Bowl, and I remember Guadalcanal Diary opening All for, right. do you remember that band? Oh, yeah, yeah. I thought they just crushed R.E.M. that night, and I, and I <laughs> went there to see R.E.M. I, I mean, you tell me, replacements or R.E.M., pound for pound, if you could somehow quantify this, who was the better band? Who's the better rock band? Well, you know, I mean, for me, I, I, I'm I'm very biased in that answer. But I just think the replacements in those eight albums they make, what you hear is such an incredible evolution from, you know, like I say, this kind of pop punk thing to a hardcore thing to an anything goes thing. That middle period where they're just an amazing American rock and roll band, a kind of classic rock and roll band. You know, then they go a little bit more pop, and then by the end, you know, eight albums in, it's kind of like singer songwriter rootsy kind of stuff. And I, I just don't think that many bands uh, have that kind of evolution in that amount of time. And just just all eight records to me are, you know, pretty essential. So I think, you know, pound for pound, if we're talking, you know, R.E.M. obviously had a much longer career, much more successful career in a way, but but went a lot longer and sort of, I think, you know, in terms of the records, petered out a little bit. So, you know, I got to go with my guys, but I'm a, I'm, I like loud and fast and kind of, uh, you know, wooly rock and roll. So I, I'm going to have to side with replacements on that one. All right. So before you go, what about that box set? Rhino Entertainment released a replacements box set, Dead Man's Pop. You co-produced it. All right. So what does does that include? Well, you know, one of the things, you know, after the book came out, uh, one of the things we've been trying to do is, is, is kind of get through and dig through the archives a little bit uh, of replacement stuff, unreleased stuff, stuff that hasn't come out, stuff that, you know, could be sort of shine a light on. And in 2017, we put out this archival live record called Live at Maxwell's, uh, which is a double disc of the first version of the band with Bob Stinson playing at this club in New Jersey. And it's just absolutely amazing kind of live record, which we really felt like we had to get out there because, you know, for a band whose reputation is based on their, 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 their stage, shows like this is the, the absolute thing and then the next project we wanted to do was a look back at their Don't Tell a Soul album which was a really kind of weird record I mean it's their most successful record had a kind of radio hit in I'll Be You sold the most records for them but the mix of the album was sort of handed off away from the band and the producer Matt Wallace to a kind of third party because the band at that point you know they've been together 10 years they needed a hit I think, to survive. And so they said, let's go give this to a guy who can give it, get us a hit. And so they made the record sound very much of 1988, 1989 in terms of the, the, the mix aesthetic. It's, you know, really 
echoey, reverby, almost dated is, is, is what it is. And so we went back to the archives and found the, the kind of original mix that Matt Wallace, the producer, had done uh, and had him kind of essentially finish that. And then we've included a double disc live from that tour and another disc of all these rarities, including this uh, late night session that the replacements did with Tom Waits while they were making that record. So it's a four disc, uh, one LP set that kind of uh, is a, sheds a new light on the Don't Tell a Soul period. And it's got, like I say, a, a new version of the album, a live record, and all kinds of rarities. And, and that's available from Rhino uh, right now. So. so how do people get that? Um, they can go to rhino.com or Rhino Entertainment. It's available on Amazon, you know, all the streaming services, all that kind of stuff. So it's, uh, as they say, it makes the perfect holiday gift. No, it, it's awesome. I could do this for three more hours really quickly, though. Bottom line, like, like for those who don't know, who is Alex Chilton and what did he mean mm-hmm. to the band? How did that song come to be? Well, Alex Shilton was a guy, he had a, another fascinating career. He was 16 years old, and the first time he gets in the studio, he records a hit called The Letter, which was a massive hit in the 60s for a band called The Box Stops. So Alex was a guy who was like a pop, teen pop star at 16, and then he ended up, you know, that band broke up, and he started a band called Big Star, which, again, was very much like the replacements in that people thought they were going to be huge, and, you know, nothing ever happened for them. They were kind of like forgotten cult band. And and later, Alex, of course, had a, had a career and, and crossed paths with the replacements in 84, toured with them, uh, produced some demos for them. And so Paul wrote that song kind of in tribute to Alex, I think. But in a way, I think he saw the, the, the life and career that Alex had had, in a sense, of being kind of like the superstar and then a cult star. You know, he sort of had a reverse career. And I think he was, you know, again, kind of romanticizing and, and, and looking at that. And in a way, it's, it's, it's one of their replacement's best songs, uh, I, I think. And, and, you know, came out in 87. And it remains kind of the, one of their biggest, biggest hits, uh, quote-unquote. So, you know, you still hear it on football games and, and, and uh, bumper music and that kind of thing. I, I love it. I, I think it's an amazing song. I think it's an incredible, beautiful song. Like, where do you come out? I think it depends on what kind of a fan you are, right? Like, I've heard you talk about this, too. I, I found the band with Tim, and I love Please to Meet Me. Like, I love all that stuff, and I work my way backwards, but that's where mm-hmm. I started. I happen to love that song. I have no issue with the song. I don't think it makes them sellouts or anything like that. What do you think of that song? Of, of Alex Chilton or of yes, you? Alex Chilton. Oh yeah, Alex Schultz. No, I mean, I think that's. I, I think that whole record, which they actually made in Memphis with uh, this guy Jim Dickinson, who had worked with the Rolling Stones. I think that's really probably start to finish, maybe their best record. At least certainly the most consistent of their records. Um, but you know, there are things like Tim, as you say. Like I, I'm a fan, like you. I started it with Pleased to Meet Me, and I worked my way backwards. And I think you know things like Tim uh, is such a classic because I think it has like kind of the songs that so much of Westbrook's reputation rests on. You know, you've got like the the, the loud anthem and Bastards of Young. You've got like uh, Little Mascara, the romantic song you've got. Here comes a regular, which is like a heartbreaking kind of, you know, hard on sleeve song about basically chronic alcoholism. Uh, so I think you know that's the kind of the, the cool thing about the replacements is like they gave you a little bit of everything, and sometimes on all on one record, sometimes in one song, you know. So it's 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 sort of. Uh, yeah, you can you can ask me on one day, and I'll have a different top ten replacement song as I will the next. Well, that's my favorite album. Tim is my favorite album. I would love to impress you with some crazy knowledge, but I'm not better than this, Bob. Like, Left <laughs> to the Dial is my favorite song. How, how Can you explain to me, I understand that alcohol was an issue. I've seen video where Paul doesn't remember the words to one of his most favorite songs, or one of his famous songs. Is that unusual to you, or is that kind of a rock star thing, or what? Like, how could you not know the words to Left to the Dial? <laughs> 
Well, you know, the funny thing about Paul is his memory is like one of those things where I would ask him stuff while we were doing the interviews, and he would have some detail from something that happened when he was eight years old and remember it in just the most minute detail. And then he'd come around and ask me, say something like, now let it let it be, did that come before or after Tim? Like he no. didn't remember the order of his records, no. but he could remember something from when he was eight. So I think it's just the nature of the way his mind works, <laughs> the sort of creative mind, that some things he remembers and some things he doesn't, but uh, there's no real explanation for that. He I don't can't, think. he doesn't remember the sequence of the albums. All right, it would stand to reason at this point in time, Bob, that people would know where to find a book, but if they want to get, and it is the definitive story written on this band, Trouble Boys, the true story of the replacements, how do our listeners get the book? Uh, again, you can go to the website that I have set up. It's called it's replacementsbook.com, or of course, it's available at uh, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, any of your finer uh, book retailers online and, and in brick and mortar. Better late than never. As I mentioned, we should have done this much sooner, but I'm so glad we came together. I, I could do it for another hour, but out of respect to you and everybody else working on this, I'm going to cut you all loose, but that was so great, Bob. I really appreciate that. Congrats on the great work, and hopefully, we can do it again soon. I appreciate it, Romy. Like I say, it's a real pleasure to, to, to finally hook up with you, man. Hey, listen. I don't care if you're a fan of The Replacements or not. How could you not be a fan of that conversation? What an amazing deep dive with the brilliant Bob Mayer. Huge thanks to him for indulging me on a super insightful look back at one of my all-time favorite bands. Now, if you want to know more about The Replacements and the influence they had on the era and beyond, check out Bob's book, Trouble Boys. It is, again, the definitive work on The Replacements with access that nobody else has ever had. And since it's the new year and everybody is about bettering their lives, go right ahead and better yours right now by getting subscribed to this podcast. Then go next level with it and leave a review. If you do both those things and then share that pod with a friend, well, take the rest of the year off because you've already killed it. Appreciate you listening, and I will catch you back on the normal schedule with a Wednesday drop next week. Until then, here is your first batch of voicemails for 2020. First new message. Hi, Jim. It's Bella B in Calgary. I hope that you and Janet and Jake and Logan and Sapphire and Cody the Red Doll and the Raccoons all had a wonderful Christmas. Now get your ass back to work. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim, what's going on, man? This is David from Buffalo. want to wish you guys a uh, happy new year there. 2020 is going to be a big year in the jungle. I'm interested to see if you guys bring back the world tour. I'd love to see the Cavalin Asian get a shot to guest host in the jungle. Looking for Rick and Buffalo to bring home the smack off this year. love to see us get a world championship, not only in the NFL, not only in the NHL, but in the jungle, too. I'm out. Message saved. Next message. Van Smack, Gerald the Mailman out here in Louisiana, Danny freaking DeVito, Danny freaking DeVito. I mean, I don't know how you top this one, Jim. This is my favorite one of all time. Keep up the good work. Message saved. Next message. Hey, Jim. This is Ingrid Ski from San Juan Capistrano on a long 20-hour drive to Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. And my husband has been playing your podcast, and I'm hooked. Loved hearing Danny DeVito and Kevin and Bean. Now my husband's hyped to play an old one from some guy named Elk. He says he's a legend. War Lady clone. Bye. Message saved. Next message. Jimmy, Hall of Famer, man. JJ in Kansas City. How about those cheese? New England, you cheese 
or you choke grits. Holy hell, the NFL gave you a gift. They sent Miami to you with their heads on the platter at the end of the year, and you couldn't do it. You deserve to get your asses stomped out of the playoffs in the freaking wild card round. Miami, thank you. I love you. I promise I'll buy an extra kilo of cocaine this year just to show my appreciation. Message deleted. Next message. Romy, Justin from Melbourne. My New Year's resolution for the clones is do better. Better phone calls, better emails, better tweets. Message deleted. Next message. Jim, Kevin in Castro Valley. Just wanted to call and wish you, Janet, Jake, and Frogie Loam a happy holiday. Just wanted to say, though, Marshawn Lynch coming back to the Seahawks is like the ghost of Christmas past. I'm having nightmares that this guy is going to prevent my Niners from making a run in the playoffs. He hasn't played in a year. He's old and fat like Beaks. Message deleted. Next message. Hey, Jim. My name is Richard, and I live in Cerritos. I started listening to the show in January of 1994, which means January of 2019. Started my 25th anniversary year with the program. A friend of mine in law school in 93 badgered me to listen to the show, and I waited. Then I heard Gretzky invoke you and God after they won the Campbell Cup. I said, all right, let me start listening, and I got into it. And then I heard Julius from Camp Pendleton say, magic put tongue down Isaiah's mouth, and I was hooked. And so I've been listening ever since. want to thank you for 25 years, and uh, down it, firefighter. Message saved. You have no more messages.